Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host as always, Dr. Jason Woods. In this episode, a panel of experts talks about their experience with opiate use disorder in the time of COVID and specifically efforts to maintain access to MAT during COVID. I do want to note that the original recording contained contributions from Dr. Karen Scott, who was president of the Foundation for Opioid Response Efforts, or FOUR, and Dr. Alistair Martin, who's an emergency medical specialist and the founder of Get Wavered. Both were cut due to time constraints for this particular episode, but I will have them listed as contributors in the show notes, and you can go look at the rest of their work. They're amazing. I will have a couple of different websites for you to look at. Our guests included in this episode are... Gail D'Onofrio, who's professor and chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Yale School of Medicine and is the chief of emergency services at Yale New Haven Hospital. Emily Kaufman, who's an assistant clinical professor at Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And Sandra Schneider, who's the associate executive director of clinical affairs and the past president of the American College of Emergency Physicians. That's a heck of a lineup today. Gail, we're going to go to you first. Can you lay out the state of things in covid what are the factors that potentially increase morbidity or mortality? And, and what do you think about ways that we can improve or at least maintain access to MAT while we're all dealing with all of this? We know that the ED is the 24-7, 365-day option to fight the opiate crisis. It also is our option, unfortunately, for COVID crisis as well, but we know that we are available. And so why we focus on the ED, obviously, is that's where the patients are and patients will come in, whether they're for overdose, whether they're for seeking treatment, or whether they're identified by screening. I don't like to scare people about screening because people have all these connotations around that, who's going to do it, how much, how hard it is. But essentially, most of our patients can be found really pretty easily just during the course of the visit. So they'll either be there for an infectious disease, an abscess, or withdrawal. Etc. And so even if we just work with the people that are right in front of us, we'll have an opportunity to really impact quite a few people. So what we can do is we can identify these people in any course. We can initiate them, as Alistair said, on buprenorphine. We can do overdose education, naloxone distribution. And really, we know that naloxone should be distributed because people do not fill out the scripts or the scripts are difficult to fill or people don't have the money. So as much as we can put naloxone in the hands of people, the best we will do is saving lives. And we need to directly link them to um, ongoing agonist therapy. And as we know, we're not saying people are going to be always on buprenorphine. We're just using that because that's what we can do. And patients will go to either opiate treatment programs or to any type of a provider, and they will then be placed on what is best for them, their preferences, what's best for them, and maybe even what they can afford. So this is just from our health system in the last few months because we're doing it as part of another project. What this slide showed in our health system is that pretty much the patients with OUD were mirroring the patients in the ED. So we were not getting a lot of people here. And then that little tiny line that's going astronomical is our COVID population. So we have not seen what we'd expect to see, but New Haven is very different than most of the country in that we have so many resources and they are still available. 
whether it's our treatment programs or our clinics here at Yale, they are seeing people here. And due to all of the relaxing uh, regulations, people can be seen after we see them here without having an established relationship. They can go right to the clinic and be seen by telemedicine and continue their care. I'm not suspecting that this is true, as I'm hearing from Alistair and other places around the country. They have been a lot of overdoses, and I'm really afraid that we're seeing more people who are dying in the field and are with the social isolation, people are not using with other people all the things that we try to tell people to do. So they're not with people that may have naloxone on them to use. And also with the social isolation, what we are seeing is that they're using all different drugs, especially alcohol. And so large amounts of alcohol in addition to opiates can be a big problem, obviously, or any other drugs that they're getting. So this social isolation has really caused a lot of issues and also mental health issues of depression. There's also a huge interruption in their supply, and that may be in different areas due to treatment. We have found in different cities around the country that they are not able to take people because they're not seeing people or doctor's offices are closed and they're still going with uh, have to be an established patient. Our opiate treatment programs around the country are not all supplying or seeing people same day as they had done in the past. So even their treatment that they had may be interrupted. And also, of course, their source of where they get their usual drugs from may be interrupted, in which case they're using other sources or over the web or other places where they don't actually know that source well or know what that drug is they're buying. And so they may be using too much or using fentanyl when they thought it was heroin or whatever. It wasn't cut as much as it had been. So we're constantly messaging out that people should try small amounts of drug that they get before they actually inject it. With that interruption in supply comes huge problems. In addition, there's little access to harm reduction strategies in many places. So needle exchange programs have shut down or maybe bans are not working as well as they had been doing before. Or there's not enough programs or health departments that are capable of giving out naloxone that they might have done previously. And as we all know, this population is incredibly vulnerable. So this is a huge problem. Many, many times they are homeless. Many shelters have shut down because of COVID. Many people are afraid to go into the shelters for a variety of reasons. They could be afraid that they would contact COVID or they could be afraid that there's no monitoring. And if they are in treatment, they don't want to go into some place where they'll see all the drug paraphernalia and and really be a trigger for them to start using again. So this is a huge vulnerable population that when we're no longer having appropriate and safe housing, it's difficult for them to stay safe. And obviously they have fewer options for care in this population that it really has to be from the ED. We've all seen these massive decreases in our ED, I think throughout the country, they're anywhere from 30 to 60% down in their um, all patients. We wonder what's happening to people with strokes and heart attacks, but also what's happening to our patients with substance use disorders and where are they going and what's happening to them. And they are a vulnerable population because they have huge comorbidities general. Almost all of them, 90% of them will smoke. And that's either tobacco, marijuana, or they will vape, all of which will put them at high risk should they develop COVID and have negative outcomes. They often have chronic lung disease if they've been around for a while and smoking, and they also are often immunosuppressed as they're injection drug users. They may have other infectious diseases, all of which put them at risk to really having a negative impact in health outcomes should they contact COVID-19. And so all of that is really quite worrisome.
This was probably the most devastating article or um, news media event that came out from Indiana that police department suspended Narcan use as officials raise alarm over overdose deaths during this pandemic. This was very scary because, as you know, obviously there are a lot of pre-hospital people, whether that's the police, the firefighters, anybody, even regular humans that are out there who have been carrying around Narcan, but anyone and all the pre-hospital providers have saved hundreds and thousands of lives. And so um, the fact that they were suspending Narcan and that people would die is incredibly disheartening. There are things that people have done and EMS providers are doing, but EMS is capable of giving Narcan IM. They're capable of even giving it IV or a variety of different sources, or many of them may have personal protective equipment and are capable of giving Narcan internasally and not be worried about the aerosolation that someone would be if they didn't have PPE. So many of them are adapting to it, but this is very worrisome. It's also, as I'm sure that all of you in the community are finding that people are not resuscitating everyone in the field. And the reason for that is because we know that the outcomes for people with COVID who are in full cardiac arrest are really pretty dismal. However, remember that there are still many people out there who have obese disorder and are young or any age and really just needed the Narcan and they would survive. So this is really worrisome. And I hope wherever everybody is, they're asking their police departments and first responders, what are they doing and making sure they get the appropriate PPE if they need it and not just letting lots of people die. I suspect that we are going to see this increase in death states by state, because I don't even think we're seeing these people in the ED that they are really just stopping resuscitation events at the scene. So we know that really our success and our success of improving the health of the public really, and particularly those with opiate use disorder depend on two things. So And that's that one has to initiate treatment and one has to have this linkage. So whatever we do, we have to be really careful about this. And we also know that, you know, we think that we should be a little bit more explicit here and let's try to figure out how that can happen without my just telling you that it can happen. And so we have a lot of questions that we need to answer. And so some future questions of which we were working on right now, actually, but in in terms of the effects of COVID, we need to understand the overall state overdose rates. Um, We are fortunate that we do have a large study by night of 30 diverse EDs around the country. So we are gaining some information as we go on right now about what's happening right now in their EDs in terms of their ED visits for non-fatal overdose of withdrawal and other complications, as well as trying to get state information, which is not easy month by month regarding overdose rates so that we could then intervene. Uh, But we will have some look at at least 30 different areas that are pretty diverse around the country. We need to understand, too, what happens and what are the outcomes of patients who have OUD and what can we help them with and be very creative in, since many of them are going to need housing, where are they going? In my city, we've opened up a high school actually for homeless, but it's really difficult when we know the person has COVID-19, so it's um, a little dicey. 
And we are trying to look at barriers and facilitators during this time of initiation and referral. Where are the sources that you normally refer to? And that kind of comes up with changes in ED prescribing. So I'm hearing around the state they're having lots of trouble. So we're trying to get emergency physicians to order quite a few. I have heard from some uh, days where we used to try to keep it about three days, four days. Some people are not prescribing up to 30 days and then bringing the patient back and re-prescribing until they can finally find some program to take the patient. And we're going to have to work on this if we can't do anything else. And we're going to have to work on this harm reduction strategies because if in your particular area, we have to do better at educating patients about being together in this social isolation, how will that work? Our pre-hospital experts at Yale are working on now a um, survey of all over the country of pre-hospital usage of naloxone and how are we going to get around this and make sure these individuals do get PPE so that they feel comfortable of administrating naloxone. All right, Emily, we're going to move over to you. Can you tell us a little bit about what Ohio has experienced during this time and and what data you have? Um, A little bit about me. I'm actually trained emergency medicine as well as internal medicine physician. I actually practice both disciplines. Um, Most of my time is spent in the emergency room. I'm also involved in residency education for our dual training program at Ohio State, but I have been integral in starting our MIT pilot at our community hospital in Columbus on the Near East Side. It's in a fairly economically depressed area, we have a large African-American population. We do a lot of primary care, but we also unfortunately see quite the intersection, as do many emergency departments, of mental health and substance use disorder. So it's my pleasure to be here. So today, I will more or less probably do in a less graceful fashion describing what life was like in Ohio prior to the pandemic, and believe it or not, has been, gosh, not even you know two months ago, what it's like now. And perhaps what we can anticipate during the recovery phase. And just to make aware, what we have available currently in our hospital at Ohio State, we essentially have, I would say, pretty complimentary wraparound services for patients responding to the department for all needs. We'll have the overdose patient. We will have the patient seeking treatment. We will also have patients that will be identified by a screen. We now have an opioid use disorder screen that's in the emergency department, which I have to say was probably one of the hardest things to get implemented, even more so than getting folks trained. Um, So essentially, we are able to identify patients. We're able to appropriately find them on the spectrum of inclination toward treatment. If they're interested in Suboxone, we will initiate it there. We will send them home with bridge scripts. We've been providing naloxone in our department since 2015. We've been doing fentanyl test strips since it's not quite been a year, but we have a big need for fentanyl test strips. We are not doing syringe exchange yet. We're hoping that's coming. We have peer support in the emergency department. We can provide direct access to treatment during certain hours of the day. We have a fairly large inpatient detox facility at 55 beds, but we certainly have a wide network of other providers that we can refer to. So this is work that we've done over the last several years. Unfortunately, from 2015 to about 2017, Ohio had the illustrious title of number two in terms of drug overdose deaths. In 2018, we had a particularly banner year as we moved down to number five, which was a 22% reduction. So there's a lot of good work that's happening here. Franklin County is where I live here in central Ohio. It's where the Columbus is, the most populous area of the state. Unfortunately, Our county is somewhat bucking the overall productive trend in the state of Ohio, and we seem to be going the opposite direction. We're not really sure why, but since 2017 was a particularly poor year for opioid overdose deaths in the state of Ohio, 
And in 2018, while a lot of our major counties to the west, like Montgomery County would be like near Dayton, Cuyahoga County being the north, sort of towards the Cleveland area, they all had significant declines in their overdose deaths. Unfortunately, we seem to be ticking up each year. And so much so that in 2019, our coroner actually released our data that showed that we had already increased 14% from 2018 to close to 600 deaths. And that's just in our county. And most of those were fentanyl, as I mentioned before, a lot of increase in cocaine-related deaths, and unfortunately, a big uptick in um, African-American deaths. And I think we mentioned a little bit earlier about the, the regulatory changes, which have obviously made it more lenient for treating patients with medication for opioid use disorder. In the state of Ohio specifically, they have not been lenient about extending the length of the prescription because our hope was if at least if I could see these patients, we could get them a longer script and the hope was to go up to 30 days. Unfortunately, though, we still are at a 14-day limit for at least folks who are early in recovery, meaning they are within the first 90 days of treatment. There are other states, like Dr. D'Onofrio was mentioned, that have gone up to 30 days. Unfortunately, that has not been relaxed in the state of Ohio, but then again, I have not been seeing those patients in the department to even provide that as an opportunity. So in the last four weeks, our coroner does report these overdose death surges. She puts them on social media. They're not completely accurate. I think they're a little bit of an underestimate because she puts the full summaries out in a quarterly basis. But essentially, we've had a little over 30 deaths in the last four weekends. And she actually puts a posting to please check on your loved ones. You know, we can't forget about this and the ongoing COVID pandemic. Nobody's talking about this. We need to know where these folks are. We need to get them in the lock zone. There was actually a concern with our local police department, much like what uh, Dr. Nofrio was mentioning in Indiana, Columbus police were for a brief time instructed due to fear of aerosolization of the coronavirus to essentially, you know, to a certain degree withhold treatment until they could activate EMS. And I think that's been clarified now and they've been provided with appropriate PPE and technique. But when this first started, that was shocking for many of us. And EMS was specifically instructed prior to obtaining, you know, their own PPE and their N100 masks, what they use to, you know, use naloxone uh, intramuscularly or potentially IV. But oftentimes they'll still give it by MAD device because most of them are wearing these N100 masks anyway. But they've seen a decrease in number of EMS runs, decreased number of transfers, but yet the death toll is, is going the wrong direction. So I think we're all sort of trying to anticipate is there going to be this surge? Not a surge in the sense that New York is currently experiencing, but in terms of patient volumes, because clearly we have not seen the folks with chronic illnesses for many weeks now. And, that, and I worked a shift, I guess it was about a week ago, it was on a Monday, we were understaffed and there was high acuity and um, <laughs> high volume. And so I was like, is this a test of what's going to come? And these folks were really, really sick who were coming into the department. So Will there be a surge of, you know, folks with all these chronic illnesses, including all of our patients with substance use disorder, who will be in, in a bad shape? And I, I do worry that we're not finding folks who've overdosed, who unfortunately are probably deceased at home. And I think these numbers are going to be retroactively much higher than we think. Or will our patients with substance use disorder continue to fear coming to the hospitals? I mean, there's been so much fear in the folks that I have seen in the department were actively seeking treatment. They, you know, again, they were so fearful to come. They didn't think we'd be able to help them. You know, how do we get this messaging out to them? What will our treatment center access look like? Will we have enough beds? Do we need a surge plan for those as well? Even though they've been open as of late, what does it look like on the other side? And in terms of solutions, things that we're looking uh, to, or we're working out to, reaching out to as many community partners as possible, 
There's discussion of bridge clinics. We don't currently have a bridge clinic at our site. We will have one, unfortunately, within the next year. But looking within community partners to have some type of bridge clinic where these folks can be immediately seen. How do we get the word out to folks in the community that we are open, we are available for help? And then even just including these wraparound services on hospital property, sister hospital up north, Metro Health in Cleveland, they actually, as the pandemic hit, they were already in the process of sort of getting an RV ready to go. And they actually have an RV on their hospital property, but aside from the ED, where it's staffed by a nurse practitioner, and it's essentially doing MAT prescribing, they don't actually dose yet. They weren't able to get that all in place, but they do you know, Narcan, phenyl test strips, syringe exchange. They can do testing to a certain degree, peer support, and linkage. So I think we have to be flexible. We're, we're trying to work out to go out with our EMS providers and provide as many services as we can in the field, including MAT, for those who are too fearful to come with us. All right. And last up, Sandra, we're going to move on to you. What resources does ASEP have and what programs might be available to help individual practitioners and institutions address OUD in in the current climate? We have this dual obligation. We have an obligation not to introduce opioids to people who have not had them, and, and then an obligation to treat patients who have developed opioid use disorders. So looking at the first problem, We have been talking about how to address acute pain. Rather than reflexly going to opioids, we've been looking at alternatives to opioids for people with kidney stones or headaches or other types of conditions where we previously would have just jumped to opioids and potentially exposed those people. So we went from that to really talking about, could we do some type of an accreditation program? And this is a brand new program where hospitals can actually say that they want to do something about the opioid crisis in the uh, country. We have three levels of accreditation. Uh, The lowest level is basically just saying you're going to do things to reduce the number of opioids that you prescribe, and you're going to take better care of your patients doing it. You're going to address their pain, but not with opioids. And the highest level is really those that then have a, a very robust opioid use disorder system of care where patients are started on treatment in the emergency department where doctors are wavered and then there is a warm handoff to opioid treatment programs in the community. This is again a brand new program and a chance for hospitals to really say that they want to do something about opioid issues in their community and they want to make it a safer community for both patients with disorders and to prevent patients from getting exposed unnecessarily. We also have a series of point of care tools. These are on our website, free to all, and for our members, you can get them on your phone. And this is our buprenorphine use in the ED. It's meant to very quickly answer questions about, you know, what was that dose? Or does this patient really qualify? Or, you know, how should I be screening this patient? So these are drop-down tools that anyone can use to help improve the care of buprenorphine. And again, this is on our website, which is very easy to remember, which is www.acep.org. The listeners will probably be able to tell that in the original recording of this, there was a number of visuals to show you these toolkits. I'm going to link to all of the toolkits in the show notes, but they're very easy to find on the ASAP website. Perhaps the most exciting thing is the Sigma Summit. Many patients with opioid use disorders, many of their families have come into emergency departments and have not had the best patient experience. And in a large part, that is for the emergency physicians and the emergency staff to own. 
this summit was absolutely incredible. It was a chance for patients to talk to the doctors and doctors to talk to the patients. And the amount of understanding that came out of this summit was absolutely incredible. People talking about their children, their own opiate use disorder. And we had a lot of federal partners and uh, other societies there. This is all actually being made into a, a movie. And these resources, again, are available or will shortly be available on our website. But it's very interesting to have the conversation because these are groups of people who don't ordinarily talk to one another. And we see every patient on their worst day and they come in realizing that we might judge them and all of those perceptions need to be torn away so that we can see the human beings on both sides of this equation. We have a wonderful federal partners that we are working with. Uh, SAMHSA has been terrific, PCSS, and we could not do the work that we're doing without this. Again, ASEP represents 40,000 emergency physicians. Our physicians are out there on the front line for opioids. They're on the front line for COVID. We are a caring bunch, although we sometimes get very hardened, and we're trying very hard to come and do the best thing for patients with both of these problems. That's the end of our time today. I hope you found that incredibly helpful. The show notes will have a ton of links in them for the toolkits and the and the data and the papers that were referenced today. Definitely go check them out. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of the ASEP Equal series at the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, or earlier on in this feed. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. We have a few more episodes that are all about opiate use disorder and substance use disorder and addressing different pieces of this problem that has just become increasingly difficult in the current medical climate. Thanks for listening.